I've always been interested in secret things like hidden rooms and unlockable safes. Wink, wink, Reddit. But what if there were similar secrets hidden inside places visited by millions of people per year? Today we'll discover the secrets and oddities of two of the world's most famous landmarks. Next stop, France. Welcome back, travelers. It's time for another stop on our journey through the quirky and unusual. I'm your driver, Z Algar, and you're listening to Travels by Carriage. Okay, friends, I'm going to be really honest with you. I am really struggling with this whole podcast thing. Like, what am I doing? You know? I don't know. I've never been one of the, like, popular, like, cool kids at school. So it's not like I expected things to take off immediately. But it's crazy how disappointing it is. To put so much work into something and then feel like nothing's happening. I mean, like, nothing's happening. And I guess that's okay. I mean, I don't know what, like I said, I really expected from it. Now I'm just talking to myself with my dog lying here on the bed. What I'm curious about is what direction I want to take this in. Like, I just listened to my own intro, and it kind of sounded like listening to NPR, but like, NPR that I like. So I like that, right? I think that's kind of fun. But then I also have moments where I feel like my southern accent really comes out. And then I do these things where I do really fun tones with my voice. Yeah, like that. I don't, I don't know. I don't really notice that I'm doing it until I go back and listen. So maybe it's just how I naturally speak. It just doesn't seem to align to other parts of the podcast where I feel like I'm a little more, a little more formal. I don't know. What's, what's the correct path? You know, part of me is like, what do the people want? Must cater to the, the, the masses. Um, but I don't know if that's what my goal was when I started this podcast. I started this podcast because I love unusual and kind of odd and, yes, definitely creepy stuff. And so that means I listen to a lot of the greats out there. I won't name names because I don't know what can get me in trouble. Um, But I listen to a lot of podcasts. I follow a lot of YouTube channels that cover um, unusual, strange, creepy, a little bit of true crime. And here's where I felt like there was still room for me. Because if I listen to all these things, then what's the point in starting my own? Well, the reason that I thought that it could be worthwhile is that even my most favorite uh, media would go into graphic detail on some horrible things that happened. Now, I have morbid curiosity. I want to hear about the thing. But I don't want every little awful detail about it. I don't know. Ever since I had kids, it's just like I get a little triggered, maybe, especially with stories that have children. It's just not my cup of tea. I don't I don't need to hear in graphic detail all the horrible things that happened. We can suffice it to say that they died and it was not not a good time. And so when I started brainstorming about wanting to do this, I wanted to do something 
similar, but that wouldn't make me feel uncomfortable. I believe that these stories deserve to be told, but, um, so I felt like there was still room for me and I wanted to still cover odd things. And so I've been searching very carefully to find things that I think fit kind of the oddball, strange, be a little, maybe a little dark, but not, not graphic, not gory and not hopeless. I like for my stories to have just a little bit of hope. And so where do I look for this inspiration? Well, I went to history and as I'm visualizing this, I'm thinking history has a lot of tales that deserve to be told. These are real people, real stories. And somehow I visualized kind of a, a journey. Anywho, we come up to travels by carriage because I think of it as like stops along a historical timeline. And, and we're only stopping at things that aren't too intense for, for our group here. That's kind of, I think, how I envision it. But... It's a slow start. It's a slow start. It's taking a lot of time to build anything. And that's okay. It's where we are right now. I'm not even sure why I'm recording right now. Other than I'm about to start telling you about our newest tale. And this was on my mind. So um, who knows if I'll keep this in. I don't know. If I do and you are still listening, thank you <laughs> for hearing out this vent. And with that, I will get right into today's story. So here I go into my NPR voice. You guys let me know if you like it. So the title of today's episode is The Sister Monuments of Gustav Eiffel. So I won't even try to hide the first monument that we're going to talk about here today. It is, of course, the Eiffel Tower. So let me give you a bit of an idea of how this episode will work. I'm going to tell you just a little bit about Gustav Eiffel before I dive into what I am calling his sister monuments, one of which is the famed Eiffel Tower, and the other I'll leave you to decipher as we work towards the end of our story. Some of you already know Gold Star for our listeners who already know the other monument Gustav Eiffel is famous for. But if you're not yet amongst those numbers, fear not, my travelers, you will soon be able to claim that title for yourself. So let's start with the birth of Gustav Eiffel. Gustav Eiffel was born on December 15th, 1832 in Dijon, France. He would go on to become one of the most famous engineers of his time, lending his last name to the famed landmark, the Eiffel Tower, located in Paris, France. His early days in engineering started with railroad bridges. If you're ever curious, Wikipedia has quite a list of structures that Eiffel designed or was involved with making, many of which are still standing today. In his lifetime, he studied not only engineering, but also meteorology and aerodynamics. At one point, he actually had a weather study center in the Eiffel Tower and would measure things like wind speed and temperature. 
in 1913, Gustav Eiffel won the Samuel P. Langley Medal for Aerodynamics from the Smithsonian Institute. So he was very much a man of science, and we will see that love of science come back over the course of our tale. So let's talk a bit about the Eiffel Tower. So I'm going to start with the Eiffel Tower here, really because it's the most well-known. But it is not the first of the sister monuments to have occurred chronologically speaking. So bear that in mind as I give you this information on the Eiffel Tower. Now, there are so many fun facts out there about this tower that I could have just done an episode on the Eiffel Tower and we could have filled up like half an hour, probably more, with just a list of cool things about the Eiffel Tower. So if you are into history um, and love to geek out on that kind of thing like myself, I highly recommend you listen to some podcasts that have really covered this in depth or um, find some really good articles out there. I certainly have a number of them in the references down below. So with that, I will dive in. So the Eiffel Tower is, of course, named after its primary engineer, if you will, Gustav Eiffel. Now, the reason I'm hesitant to really describe Eiffel's interaction with the tower is that right off the bat, we should clarify the tower was not designed by Eiffel himself, at least not the original design. That credit belongs to Maurice Coquelin and Emile Nguar, two designers who worked at Eiffel's engineering firm. Now, Coquelin, for sure, was also involved in the sister monument, who is uh, nearly as famous as the Eiffel Tower herself, and who we will talk about later in this episode. The actual architect for the Eiffel Tower was a man by the name of Stephen Silvestre. So while the tower was built by Eiffel's engineering firm, and he was heavily involved in the plans, especially after the initial design started to pick up steam, it was designed initially by Maurice Coquelin, Emile Naguar, and French architect Stephen Silvestre. The tower was built from 1887 to 1889, and it was originally offered as a design to be presented to Spain. However, Spain did not like the look of the tower. They considered it an eyesore, and we're going to see that sentiment coming back because, spoiler alert, Parisians would feel the same way at first. So, in 1889, after Spain declines the use of the tower in their own country, Gustav Eiffel submits the design from his engineering company for consideration to be the opening to the 1889 World Fair. It is accepted. History is made. Now, in regards to Eiffel's involvement with the design of the tower, it seems like he became more involved over time. To be incredibly clear, the initial design credit definitely goes to Maurice and Emilie. 
But it seems like Eiffel became more and more involved, and we'll see that as I tell you a little bit more about the tower. But I found it really interesting how some articles used his lack of involvement as a fun fact while also using his involvement to be a centerpiece. So, for example, in the Travel and Leisure article that I read about this, it says, Ahem. When Gustav Eiffel designed his namesake tower, he cleverly included a private apartment for himself where he hosted famous guests like Thomas Edison. The apartment is now open for the public to tour. And then, dear travelers, a few points down, it later says, Gustav Eiffel didn't design the tower. So I had to give that a little chuckle because the very first line of the previous point says when Gustav Eiffel designed his tower and then we later see he didn't design the tower. So no, he didn't design the initial tower, but he was very involved with it once the design was accepted and it was clear that this was going to be a major landmark in the city of Paris, at least for a time. The tower was completed on March 15, 1889, and it stood at 984 feet high upon completion. Now, I, as I mentioned, could go on and on about this tower, but the title of this episode is The Sister Monuments of Gustav Eiffel, and I do want to have time to get to her sister. So what I will do for you now is offer up a list of interesting facts that are both quirky and also connect to synchronicities with her sister monument. So here we go. Originally pitched to Spain, who didn't like the look of it, the sentiment was later echoed by Parisians who thought that she was an eyesore until popularity caught on perhaps a decade or so later. There is a bunker below the tower. Speaking of war times, French soldiers cut the elevator cord when Nazis invaded France just to make sure they had to climb all of the steps to the very top. The tower has changed color over the course of its 19 paint jobs so far. That's about one every seven years. The most interesting color that I came across was, how to describe this, kind of a rusty yellow color. Meteorological, oh goodness everyone, here we go. If, If you happen to have listened to me since the beginning, here's another one of those words meteorological that's the best i'm gonna do guys gals and nays measuring equipment placed on the tower in 1889 now gustav himself as i mentioned was a scientist he did this he was behind this he put the tower equipment um up there to take scientific measurements and he had a lab for himself in the tower as well Speaking of Gustav's commitment to scientists, and again, why I say that he was more involved with the tower as its design progressed, there are scientists' names carved into the iron as a tribute to the science that went into building this tower. Names were chosen by Eiffel himself, and they include a a ton of famous scientists, but the one that stuck out to me was Foucault. If you've ever been to Los Angeles, you may have gone to Griffith's Observatory, where they have one of Foucault's pendulums. 
I used to be a science teacher, so I'm going to geek out for a little bit. If you need to fast forward for a minute, go for it. So anywho, Foucault was the scientist who figured out a way to measure and, yes, prove the rotation of the Earth. And he did so by basically suspending a string from above the earth so it's not on the ground right and as the earth rotates the swing of this pendulum doesn't change but the rotation of the earth does so if you've ever been to griffith's observatory it's not the only one in the world but it's the only one that i've ever seen in person they have one of these and it's so fascinating because it looks like the pendulum is you know Of course, the pendulum swings from left to right, let's say. But then it looks like there's a third dimension because it's rotating around this clock face along the bottom. But it's not. It's the rotation of the Earth. Anywho, if you were fast-forwarding, you can stop now. I just am a total science nerd. So, Foucault's name is one of many scientists' names that are etched into the iron of the Eiffel Tower. They were painted over for a time. I couldn't really find a good reason for this, other than I think it was just kind of in fashion to not be into science, I guess. I don't know. But they have since been recovered, and the articles that I read were indicating that they're even still working on making them more visible as they were originally meant to be. There is, as I mentioned, a not-so-secret apartment in the Eiffel Tower where Gustav Eiffel used to conduct experiments and analyze the measurements from his meteorological equipment. Hey, went fast that time. And then it seems a piece of the Eiffel Tower is actually in New Orleans. Okay, this I thought was really, really fun. And it's something that is shared with the tower's sister monument. A piece has been moved. So keep that in the back of your mind. If you're if you're in your head and you're like, I think I know what it is, but I'm not really sure, here's your next hint. A piece of it has been removed. So let me tell you about the piece of the Eiffel Tower that's been removed. I'd never heard of this. And honestly, it's kind of an American tragedy. And, and are we shocked? Anywho. There's actually a piece of the Eiffel Tower in New Orleans. Why is that? Well, at one point, the Eiffel Tower had a restaurant. It wasn't at the very top. I want to say it was on the second or third level. Somebody help me out there. Not too sure. It was too heavy, and it started to cause structural concerns. So what did France decide to do? They sold the entire restaurant. They sold the entire restaurant. So the restaurant was sold to Americans. They take the restaurant out of the tower, break it down, and they ship it to the U.S. It's currently called the Eiffel. I hope I was able to get a picture up if you're watching YouTube right now. I did take like a screenshot of Google Maps. I'm pretty sure that's allowed. If not, someone let me know ASAP so I can take it down. Um, If I did have to take it down, feel free to look it up for yourself. It's on Google Maps. It's called the Eiffel in New Orleans. It looks like maybe it was a venue, but sadly, travelers, it seems abandoned now. And that's just so sad to me. I mean, it's a literal piece of the Eiffel Tower from Paris. Americans, I know you know we broke. Some of us are never going to make it to Paris, myself included. I I just think that it is so tragic that there is a piece of this mastery here in the U.S. just being left. I mean, I hope someone's painting it. 
because iron doesn't last forever. If you are in New Orleans or real estate or you know anything about this restaurant, please hit me up on social media. I have questions. What is going to happen to this piece of history? I'm so curious. That is the end of my... Oh, no. Oh, no. It was almost the end of my list of fun facts for you, friends. But nay, I have another. And it is really, really funny. It seems the Eiffel Tower has married everyone. If you were considering, if this is your crush, I hate to be the one to let you down, but the Eiffel Tower is taken by one Erica Eiffel. I'm sorry, friends. I, I know I saw her original name in my studies. I don't remember what it was because the alliteration just struck me as so comical. Erica Eiffel, she's American. Uh, uh, what what can I say? She's American, and she fell in love with the Eiffel Tower, and she married it in an, in a ceremony. After receiving a ton of backlash, though, uh, people did not react well to this news. Uh, she has since begun a relationship with the Berlin Wall, and that was the last update I could find for Miss Erica Eiffel. So I suppose if you were interested, perhaps the tower is back on the market. I don't know. Anybody who wants to find out the status of Erica and um, her loves, get back to us. My final fact for this sister in Gustav's family. Last one. There is a replica of the Eiffel Tower in Vegas. It's not the only replica of the Eiffel Tower. No, there are several. But the one in Vegas is very well known, and it is a half scale of the actual tower herself. It was meant to be full size. Unfortunately, it was a little too close to the airport. As previously mentioned, Eiffel has quite the list of feats in his portfolio. Let's talk about the second sibling in this group of sisters. Eiffel's connection to the tower is pretty well known for, well, obvious reasons. But how many of you know he was also involved in the creation of another of the world's most famous landmarks, the Statue of Liberty? In 1865, the idea was first proposed by Frenchman Édouard de Leboulet in honor of the anniversary of the American Independence Day. Leboulet had a close relationship with several Americans and felt a connection to the country, and so he wanted to commemorate the relationship between the French and the Americans. So it was his idea... The idea came to fruition in the form of the statue, which was gifted by France to the United States in commemoration of the 100th anniversary of American independence in 1886. At the time of her debut, she was 93 meters tall. The idea was put forth by Mr. Laboulet. However, the sculptor for the statue herself was one Frederic Auguste Bartholdi. Bartholdi was a French sculpture, and he originally titled his statue, Liberty Enlightening the World. How did Eiffel come to be associated with the symbol of American freedom? 
Well, the original designer, Eugene Voila de Luc, died. Oh my, yeah. So he died early, well, I won't say early. I think it was about halfway through construction, as I recall. And so the sculptor, Bartholdi, he's the one who selected Eiffel as a replacement. Eiffel kept much of the original designer's structure. However, he changed it to be more lighter and a bit more skeletal. I took this word from the Statue of Liberty's website. Also employed to work on this project, the Statue of Liberty, was Mr. Coquelin. Recall that we learned about Mr. Coquelin a bit when discussing the Eiffel Tower. Chronologically speaking, the Statue of Liberty happened first, so much of the experience that Coquelin and Eiffel gained were later employed when building the Eiffel Tower. If you take a look at the central pylon and some of the old pictures, I wasn't sure about copyright here, so I didn't put them in the YouTube, but it's pretty easy to find on Google. You can find a picture that it's, it's about halfway through covering one of the pylons for the Statue of Liberty with the plates that make up the statue part because it's not finished you can see part of the pylon it's astounding how much this looks like the eiffel tower structure in fact in one of the early sketches for the eiffel tower off to the side is a little sketch of the work that they had done on the statue of liberty and how they wanted to bring this to their plans for the eiffel tower so here we have this big connection between the eiffel tower and the Statue of Liberty. They were both constructed under Gustav Eiffel's engineering firm. Related to this is, remember we said Eiffel was a man of science. It seems that he practiced his wind tactics with the Statue of Liberty first, as both of these structures are able to move in response to wind speeds and allowed to expand and contract in relation to temperature. So I was really interested in this. I had really never heard that Gustav Eiffel had any involvement with the Statue of Liberty. And so it really piqued my interest to learn that someone so famous, whose name has been lent to such a famous landmark, was actually behind a structure that now stands for American freedom. And of course, it's just so, what's the word I'm looking for here? Synchronic? I'm thinking synchronicities, a synchronic a word, I'm not sure, that the statue was gifted to the U.S. by the French. Now, here's a little note on that. The statue was gifted to America by the French people. However, the pedestal that she stands on was not funded by the French. In fact, Bartholdi had trouble coming up with the funds to secure this pedestal for the Statue of Liberty. So in order to confront this challenge, he decided to fundraise. And so it is that the pedestal of the Statue of Liberty was paid for by tons of Americans, average Americans, anything from paper boys to businessmen is what I read in several different accounts. While the original idea dates as far back as 1865, actual construction wouldn't start until around 1883. The statue was dedicated on October 28, 1886, and here's an interesting fact. There were protesters on site that day, and I wonder if you can guess who they were. They were women, those naughty beans. 
women were protesting the opening of the Statue of Liberty because they found it a bit troublesome that the image of a woman would be used to represent freedom, when at the time women were not allowed to vote in the United States. Seems a little ironic, right? So let's sum up Eiffel's involvement here. His engineering firm is consulted after the death of the original engineer. He comes in, he keeps much of the design, but he does make changes and he experiments and learns about the ability to make the building have some level of movement, right? The building needs to be able to respond to environmental conditions. And we'll see him and Coakland and the whole engineering firm using that knowledge when they build the Eiffel Tower. So here's another Another thing about Eiffel's involvement that I thought was particularly interesting. He didn't really like the end result of the statue. I can't say if that's because he didn't like the sculpture. I can't really speak to that. But what I can say is a quote from one of the sources that I list um, in the description. He disliked the idea of putting copper plates over his work because he considered the cladding ugly. So... He works on this statue. He doesn't like the idea that his work is covered because remember, he's the engineer. So he essentially built the skeleton of the Statue of Liberty. So he's going to go on later in 1889 to be responsible for the Eiffel Tower, a giant tower that allows you to see all of the structure, no iron cladding covering up any parts. Now, where we do have iron cladding, it's interesting as I say that, this pops into my mind, is where we have the recognition of the scientist whose work went into the design of this building overall. So I just found this to be one of those interesting notes, right? Had he not had this experience with the Statue of Liberty and, and put all this work into it and then sees that, you know, no one's really ever going to see it because it's always going to be inside of the statue. Had he not had that in mind, would he been have been motivated? Would he have been as motivated to build this massive structure that really allows you to see so many of the intricate details of engineering that went into building this landmark. I don't know. It's just so fascinating to me the way history can play out. And it kind of reminds me, even when we're on our own paths, we might have a moment where we kind of see our work being covered up or not being recognized. I think it's important to remember that historically speaking, this has happened to many people all the time. And I'm not to say, I'm not trying to say that Eiffel was somehow super discouraged by this, but I am going to posit that if you put a lot of work into a structure and then it's covered up, people don't see it. And here today in 2022, I was surprised by his involvement. I just think you might feel a little disappointed that your hard work is not getting as much recognition. So what better way to make sure that you leave your mark than to later build, you know, what was at one point the tallest structure in the world and um, put your name on it. So here I'll give you a list of fun facts about the second sister in these sister monuments. Actually, the elder sister, chronologically speaking, much like me and my own sister. The elder sister is the shorter one. Hmm. Have you seen that in your family's travelers? I'd love to know. So here are our fun facts. Similar to the Eiffel Tower, this sister, the Statue of Liberty, has also had a piece removed. The original flame 
is now located in a museum at the base of the tower. And this is kind of a funny story. This episode is getting long, so I'm going to try to cut it short. But at one point, the Statue of Liberty functioned as a lighthouse. And so to do this, let me explain a bit about the original flame. So the original flame in the Statue of Liberty was a solid structure. No windows, no electronics. It was painted a golden color with the idea by Bartholdi that during the day, the sun would shine on this golden colored part of the sculpture and disseminate light throughout. It would be seen throughout the city. Over time, people are better on the whole at using electricity. So of course, over time, we develop new technology and eventually the idea of lighting the torch comes to the forefront. So to do this, they cut some holes in the bottom of the structure so that the light can be seen. And they essentially put like glass panes um, and like rivets that are holding the glass panes to the statue. So they put some of these along the bottom of the torch flame. But over time, they're like, well, we need a little more light. Well, we need a little more light. Well, we need a little more light. So they keep cutting more and more of the statue part out and replacing it with glass so that the light can be seen until eventually there's really none of the original sculpture left, only the shape of it that's now been replaced by a bunch of glass and steel and rivets. Personally, I don't think it's very pretty, but you can see it for yourself. It's in the museum. At some point, they were trying to do maintenance work on the torch, and they just realized that this wasn't doable. It wasn't, it wasn't a structure that could be maintained. So they decided to go back to the sculptor's original idea, and they essentially remade the original flame um, with the technology of the time. They painted it a golden color, and they put it atop the torch and now the original flame lies at the bottom of the tower in the museum they spent a hundred years trying to get it to light up couldn't do it and then went back to the sculptor's original idea just to sum it up Uh, a very commonly known fun fact is that she wasn't envisioned to be green. She was originally planned to be a copper color. Um, she's a copper structure, so she would be a copper color. However, copper, when exposed to the elements, turns green due to oxidization. And so they, they didn't know this was going to happen, but it did. And here we are. Eiffel specifically spoke about this in regards to the Eiffel Tower. And there's a quote from him from one of the articles that I link in the description. And I'm going to paraphrase here because I don't have it in front of me. But he says something about how a meticulous paint job will help keep her color. And there again, I can't help but wonder if that's, you know... I can't help but wonder if that's something that he says with the knowledge that the Statue of Liberty was already starting to turn or had turned green. So another just parallel between these sister monuments. As I mentioned earlier, she was originally called Liberty Enlightening the World. Similar to the tower, she was not originally destined for her final location. She was actually planned to be placed in the Suez Canal in Egypt. However, Egypt declined the statue and she was presented as an option for the statue to commemorate American independence and the friendship between France and America. She is modeled after Bartholdi's own mother, at least her face is. 
However, Libertas is the Roman goddess of freedom that she is based upon. So her face is modeled after Bartholdi's mother, but the idea of her is spawned from the Roman goddess of Libertas. This goddess is actually featured on certain Roman coins, so must have been a rather popular one of the gods. She has seven spikes on her crown, and they represent the seven oceans and continents of the world. Her torch used to be accessible until it was damaged during World War II. So again, another parallel. Both of these sister monuments have experienced some level of interaction with war. Remember, uh, Nazi soldiers cut the elevator cords to the Eiffel Tower when Germany invaded France. And finally, there is a secret box buried under the statue. Now, this is the fun fact that actually launched me on this episode, down this rabbit hole. I am an adult child, and (laughs) I say that non-ironically. I'm 35 years old, and I still love cartoons just as much, if not more, than ever before. You know, I spent a long time in my life thinking that watching cartoons wasn't cool, Please, if you're listening to this and you're still in that phase, forget about what's supposed to be cool. Just do what you like. But I have since learned that lesson for myself and and I don't care what people think. So this idea came to me because I was watching Miraculous Ladybug. Love Ladybug. Um, And in the New York movie, they go to New York and they hear that there is a safe in the Statue of Liberty and there's a key to this safe that's located in the Eiffel Tower. And they give a little bit of information about Gustav Eiffel and his involvement with the Statue of Liberty. And I was like, oh, that's so cool. Is that true? I need to go find out. It's a little romanticized and miraculous ladybug. It's not so mysterious. And I couldn't find anything that said that the key was really in the Eiffel Tower. So I think, I don't know if that truth is stretched or if it's just a detail I couldn't find support for. What I can tell you is that there is a safe below the Statue of Liberty. Maybe that's what Miraculous was pointing towards, or maybe they just were romanticizing some things. But it's not such a secret what's inside of there. There is a portrait inside of one of the big figures in American history. I should have made sure of this, but honestly, when I found out what was in the safe, I was kind of less excited. Um, it's, it's like some documents and some coins. It's not, I don't know what I was hoping for, but we know what's in there. There's an account of it. There's a scholastic article in my sources. That is the article, oddly enough, that had the most details on this, and they list exactly what's in it. If you're interested, go ahead to my description, click on the Scholastic link, and um, you will have your answers. You can visit the top of the Eiffel Tower, but you cannot visit the top of the Statue of Liberty. After she was damaged um, during that war interaction, from what I could see, it looked like there was some kind of bombing but i didn't get too far into the details and i do apologize friends but look at this episode it's the longest episode i've ever made and it was just so hard to be concise here but i did include all of the articles that i referenced in the description so if you really want to dive into this rabbit hole i encourage you there's lots of fun info about both of the sister monuments here and about gustav eiffel overall and with that i'm going to try to close it out here hopefully after 
after editing, this episode isn't really this long because I'm at like 47 minutes right now. Whoa, that's way too long. There are some reproductions of the Statue of Liberty in Paris. Another little parallel that I just thought was cool. You know, there's a piece. The restaurant from the Eiffel Tower is in New Orleans. And then we have all these reproductions of the Statue of Liberty in Paris. Um, One that I read about in particular was one that was given to France by the Americans in 1889, three years after the Statue of Liberty was gifted to America. Thought that was kind of fun, especially because it commemorates the 100th anniversary of the French Revolution. You might recall that the Statue of Liberty was gifted to America to commemorate the 100th anniversary of the American Revolution. So I thought that was fun. This particular reproduction is located on Swan Island in France and has both the American Independence Day and the date of the French Revolution engraved on the statue's tablet. If I haven't said it before and you were unaware, the actual Statue of Liberty, she has the date of American independence in Roman numerals engraved on the tablet. Final outcomes here. I'm really trying to wrap it up for us, friends. If you're still listening, thank you so much for hanging out with me. Gustav Eiffel died on December 27th, 1923 in Paris. Legend has it he was listening to Beethoven's Fifth when he died. And he is buried at, oh, I'm going to say this horribly, but I'll really try... Levois, maybe? Perret Cemetery. Let me spell that for you all, friends. I'm so sorry. L-E-V-A-L-L-O-I-S dash P-E-R-R-E-T. One quick note about the Eiffel Tower. While the Statue of Liberty was always envisioned to stay in place, the Eiffel Tower was meant to be temporary. Remember, she was built as the gate to the 1889 World's Fair, and she was supposed to be torn down after only 20 years. But instead, she became a symbol of not only Paris, but France in general. And so the engineering firm of Gustav Eiffel would build two monuments that would each go on to become symbolic representations of their respective countries. Not a bad legacy for someone who didn't like that his structure was covered up by ugly iron cladding. This brings us to the end of our stop. Today we explore the parallels and synchronicities between the sister monuments of the Eiffel Tower and the Statue of Liberty. We also took a brief look at the life of Gustav Eiffel. I hope you've enjoyed today's stop on our journey through the bazaar. If you're out there, please give me a like or a subscribe and let me know that you've been listening and what you think of our tales so far. Thanks for listening, travelers. See you on the road soon. Do you like uh, scary stuff? Yeah. Mm, mm, mm.